All right. Where am I going to stand here? Because I, I think right here is a good spot. This is perfect. Um, eh, I don't know about that. I want to be closer to you guys. How about this? Is this good? Everybody see me okay? Okay, I can't see Diane. Poor Lynn's like, okay. okay. The trees? Let me just go out in the field over there and preach from over there. All right. What's that? That's true. I never stand still, so I don't know what I'm worried about it. If you guys have a Bible, open up to the book of Ezra, Ezra in the Old Testament, and uh, we're going to get started in just a moment here. Um, I'm going to need, Sandra, do you have your phone with you? Can I borrow that for a second? I left mine in the office. Yeah, that's right, yeah. All right, guys, I'm going to try to take a picture here, so we'll see how we can do this. That's pretty good, right? About Cut Mike Haynes out, Perfect. All right, everybody look up here. I know some of you are like, I don't want to be in a picture. Too bad. Look up here, look up here, ready, boom. Okay, one more, one more. And pull back. Perfect. One of TJ. <laughs> boom. Okay. Those are awesome. All right, so uh, this morning, before we get into the message, I've got a quick announcement I wanted to share. And uh, some of you guys saw on Facebook, we posted a picture, and some of you saw it when you got here of our new-to-us bus. We're going to call it that anyway. And uh, some of you guys know we've been praying for a new vehicle for uh, Wednesday night for picking up students and kids for events and things like that. Uh, We have a 15-passenger van that um, still runs, sort of. No, it's been a great blessing to us, to be honest with you, picking up students and uh, packing it out many, many times over. And so we've been praying about a new vehicle. In the last couple of weeks, an opportunity was presented to us, and so we bought that bus. Uh, If you want all the details, you can see Zach Webb. He knows all the specs on it uh, and the engine and the motor and the blah, 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 blah. I'm like, it's a bus. That's all I need to know, and it runs. Um, So Zach Webb's back there. He can give you more details on that if you want more spec stuff. But uh, it is a great, great deal. Uh, That bus, uh, we got the bus, got it painted and lettered for $4,600. And so here's the cool blessing. Uh, A couple months ago, somebody donated about $2,000 to go towards a vehicle fund kind of a thing, just on the fly. And so we've already basically almost half paid that bus off before we ever bought it. And so praising the Lord for that, really excited for that. I know uh, those that pick up students on Wednesday night are really excited about it to have something a little more reliable. And so if you have any questions about it, see me after or see Zach. I'd love to tell you more about it, but it's an awesome, awesome blessing. Uh, we just picked it up Friday, or yesterday, picked it up yesterday, so it was a really cool deal. And so we're really excited about that. Um, this morning, as we get into the message, uh, there's a, a kind of a, a phrase that kept coming to my mind as I was preparing for this message this morning. And it's the phrase, prone to wander, prone to wander. Um, we sing, come thou founts. Many of you guys know that song. Uh, it's a very, um, a very lovely song, very powerful song. But that phrase, prone to wander, is in the verse there. And it says, prone to, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And what I love about that, what's so powerful about that phrase, is when you read the words before it, the verses before that phrase, prone to wander, it talks about this amazing grace of God, this amazing mercy of God, this love of God that saved us, that drew us into relationship with him, the fount of his everlasting love and the, and the blood that was shed to cover our sins, that amazing, beautiful gospel. And yet after all of that, in face of all of that grace, he says, the author writes, I'm prone to wander. 
And I'm amazed because in the face of that kind of a love and that kind of a grace, how in the world could we ever even believe for a moment we would leave that kind of love, that we would wander from that kind of a love, from that kind of a, a relationship with Jesus Christ? Maybe you're thinking this morning, maybe others will wander, but I never will. Some of us will think that, won't we? Others will wander. Others will, you know, get caught up in something. Others might slip. Others might fall. Others might have issues, but not me. I'll never wander. I'll never fault. I'll never fail. And I, I pray that's true. I mean, I genuinely pray that's true. But let's be real here. Even if you don't actually wander, the reality is you're going to be tempted to wander. You may not wander. You may not drift away from that intimacy with the Lord, but you're going to be tempted to. You're going to be tempted to walk away from that grace that we are a debtor to, that love that is unimaginable and consuming love. But I want you to understand something. This inner kind of a desire to wander from that love is not new. This is not a new thing that we're only battling with in the church age today or here in 2017. This is something that humanity has always struggled with, that we've been presented with the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ or in the Old Testament, the love of God, the, God, uh, the grace that God offered, which, by the way, study Genesis. God is a God of grace, not just in the New Testament, but in the Bible. He has always shown grace to us. The minute God said, here, do this sacrifice and have relationship, that was when God showed grace to the people of God. And But this isn't a new thing. We all have this inner thing in us that wants us to wander from this great God. And when we're asked about it, we would say, no, I would never want to wander. I would never want to walk away. We said it last week. Where would we go in the face of this great love that God offers us? Where could we ever go? But the truth is we will be tempted to wander. Some of us may have wandered already. Some of us may be wandering right now. Some of you may be wandered for a time and are now back into that intimacy and you're, you're kind of kicking yourself for the time you think you missed. I want to talk this morning about this idea of being prone to wander. I want to go over to the book of Ezra. Uh, that gave you a lot of time to find Ezra. Okay? So if you haven't found it yet, just act like you're there. Okay, you want to have about this much on this side and about that much on that side. Okay, so if you've got that kind of, you know, ratio going on, you're probably good. So Ezra chapter 3, Ezra 3, and look at verse 1. Yeah, if you only have a New Testament or Psalms Bible, you're, you're, you're in trouble. I don't know what you're going to do, but look at verse 1 of Ezra chapter 3. It says here, and when the seventh month was come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Then stood up, uh, well, page turn over, Jeshua, the son of Josedek, the brother and the priest, goes on from the Zerubbabel, but listen to this phrase right here, and his brethren, and builded the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, uh, the law of Moses, the man of God. Now, I love this passage here for a couple reasons, but Ezra chapter 3 verse 1 says that in the seventh month, when it was come, that they gathered themselves together as one man, and they built an altar unto the Lord. Now, a little bit of background on this. Right before this, if you read chapters 1 and 2, you're going to read about the return from captivity. The children of God, the people of God were in captivity, and they were returning to their holy land, returning to their homeland, and they were starting to kind of rebuild. They returned most likely in the spring of that year. So in the spring of this year, they return back to Jerusalem. They begin to kind of rebuild, kind of get some make, kind of makeshift homes together. And now they're kind of getting to the point in the seventh month. This would be for our calendar, it'd be the end of September, beginning of October. 
and they begin to kind of build an altar to the Lord. And then after this, you're going to read, they start actually rebuilding the temple and getting back into this time of worship. The reason this is so powerful is because they made themselves quickly available to God's commands. They returned in the spring and by the fall, more or less, they began to worship God again, actively pursuing God. It didn't take them years and years and years to get back into what God called them to do. They quickly made some structures that they could live in, some makeshift houses, and they kind of quickly said, we need to get back to worshiping the Lord. This time, this month that began here, the seventh month, is a month of beautiful feasts and, and festivals and worship ceremonies and celebrations and sacrifices, and they're beginning to worship again because for so long they couldn't worship their God in their land in their way. They were stuck in a foreign land as strangers in a foreign land. And they return home and they begin to worship God again. I mean, could you imagine the joy as all of the people of God gather together? The Bible says as one man. You know what that means? They were like-minded. They were unified. Just as this morning, we gathered together as one voice and we sang praises to our God who is above everything you can imagine, by the way. He is the God of all of creation. All of the creation we see today was his handiwork. And we get to worship that God this morning. And the people of God begin to do this. But why did they even end up in captivity? What led them even to going into captivity in the first place that they had to return from captivity? I want you to go over a couple chapters here. A couple of pages, I should say, back to Second Chronicles chapter 34. So in my Bible, it's literally like two pages. Go over a couple pages there. Second Chronicles chapter 34. Sorry for the wind there loud um if it bothers you just know it bothers me more because my ad is like going crazy right now okay so there's all kinds of things to distract me bugs people on the grass it's just nuts okay so if i don't make a lot of eye contact it's not personal it's just i will be derailed quickly okay so Second Chronicles chapter 34, I want to look at how did the children of God even end up in captivity that they had to return, and why were they so adamant to worship so fast? Why were they so adamant to get back to worshiping God the way that God commanded? I want to look at a little bit of a story before they go into captivity, and maybe we can see the bigger picture and kind of put it together for us today and apply it to our own lives here this morning. Second Chronicles chapter 34, look at verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned in Jerusalem one and thirty years. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the ways of David his father, and declined neither to the right hand nor to the left. Now, I love this verse for a couple reasons. I have a son named Josiah. And so, you know, he reminds me often, he said, you know, Dad, it is King Josiah, just so you know. And I said, not yet, buddy, you're not eight. So a couple years maybe, but... But this is an amazing story because we read about King Josiah who ruled before the captivity, but he's ruling in a time that's kind of a dark time spiritually for Israel. He was appointed at king as eight, eight years old. Not about you, but you're given the, the rule at eight years old. Now, this might sound really strange to us, but in this culture, it wouldn't be uncommon for a child or a teenager to be appointed king. It just depended on how it fell. We're going to get into Josiah's story in just a little bit here. But I want to read an author and what he said about this king. And I love what this, this gentleman said. Listen to these words. It says here, a child eight years old who had been lifted onto the throne of a murdered father must have had a strong will and a love of goodness to have resisted the corrupting influences of royalty in a land full of idols. 
This child is made king. His father's been killed. There was a conspiracy to kill his father. So now Josiah is kind of hoisted up onto this throne. And could you imagine the turmoil in the culture, in the city, in the kingdom? I mean, just the uneasiness. And there's all this idol worship. It's such a dark place spiritually. And you're Josiah. You're a young man. And you're trying to figure all this out as you go. And I don't know about you, but I would be freaking out. I would not know how to handle all of this. But it says about his testimony that he was a man with a right heart. He loved goodness. He was a good man, a, a young man that was full of faith. I say all that to say this. We've got the kids in here this morning. Our, some of our junior church kids are in here, and we've got some teens in here as well. Do not let anyone ever despise your youth. Some of you are maybe upper L, maybe mid-elementary uh, school, junior high, high school, and some of you think, what can I really do for God? How can I really make an impact for God? I mean, when I get older, then I'll do something for God. When I get, you know, uh, out of college, then I'll do something for God. When I go to Bible college and get a degree in Bible, then I'll go do something for God. When I get older, when I, when I learn more things, then I'll do more for God. Do you know that nowhere in the Bible does it put a restriction on spiritual life as far as a child? You can be six, seven, eight years old and make a spiritual influence that you can't imagine on your family and your friends and your community. You can lead your friends at school to Christ. If you go to a public school or even a Christian school and you meet somebody that doesn't know Christ, you, as a 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old, 13-year-old, you can lead people to Christ. If you know him personally, you can just tell them about the love of God that you have seen. And for the older people here, young adults like myself to, to older from that, don't ever discourage a child. Encourage them. Support them. Pray for them. Love them. Rally around them. If you see a young person, maybe a junior higher, trying to do some things for the Lord, man, just, just encourage that. Because here we see this young man that had a testimony at eight years old that he had a heart for God. We see the story unfolding in verse 3. In this dark, corrupted time for Israel, idolatry is everywhere. It's seemingly nobody worships God anymore. Look at verse 3. For in the eighth year of his reign, this being King Josiah, while he was yet young, I love that it adds that in there, that he was yet young, he began to seek after the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. Now, real quick, there's two things we're going to talk about in that verse. We're going to get to one of them, and then we'll move to the next one. Verse 3 says that this is the eighth year of his reign. So how old is King Josiah? Okay, so at 16, it says he began to walk with the God of his father, David. I love that it says that. You know what this shows me? That at 16, he began his personal walk of faith. Where before that, it was kind of maybe a corporate faith. You know, like, like some of our young people here today, the kids that are here today, you come with your family, you come to church and stuff. Maybe you haven't yet received Christ. And you're just kind of in that age where you're still kind of thinking through things and praying about things or thinking through things. You're just younger. You're not sure yet. But you're coming to church and your heart is open. This is where Josiah goes from corporate faith. I go to church in a way of thinking of it today to personal faith. This is where he personally started walking with God. And I love that it's the age 16 because it reminds me of when I received Christ at 16 at a youth camp. And I began to walk with God personally. Before that, I went to church and I did the whole thing. And I, I was terrified of God. To be honest with you, I thought he was this very angry person. And I thought, there's no way he would ever love me or forgive me. I mean, his judgment, I, I've done so many horrible things. How could he ever forgive me? I was terrified of dying. Um, and that sounds really strange for somebody that's 15 years old. But when you grow up, where I grew up in inner city Detroit, death is not something you think about when you get older. Uh, when you walk to school, I walked about 12 and a half, 13 blocks to my high school. I walked through three different gang territories. So, like, what color are you going to wear? Right? 
Like I tried plaid most of the time. I'm like, well, I'm good with plaid because I got a little bit of everything going on in here. Okay. Hopefully no golfers see me and beat me up or anything, but you know, I'll be good. But I think about when I came to Christ and my whole view of God changed. He went from a angry God to a loving heavenly father. And so for Josiah, it's kind of he begins his personal walk at the age of 16. We read on from there because his faith begins to grow and his faith takes him places. You know what's beautiful about the faith we put in God? God, or faith in God will take you places you never imagined. And so where did the faith that Josiah had in God, where did it take him? Well, it took him first and foremost into action. And listen, faith in God will always take you into action for God. Faith in God salvation will always take you into action for God. I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know what it's going to look like for you. But if you are saved and you are not active in that salvation, then there's something blocking that between you and the Father. I'm not saying you lost your salvation. You can't lose your salvation. What I'm saying, have you allowed something to distract you, to drift you, to pull you off course, and now you're thinking more about yourself or what you want, need, or have, or don't have, or than what God has for you to do? Faith in God will always lead into action for God. Look at verses 3 and 4 again there. It says here in verse 3 that he was 12 years old, or in the 12th year, I'm sorry, in the 12th year of his reign, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. And he break down the altars of Baal, uh, Balaam, and in his presence, and the images that were on high above them, he cut down the groves and the carved images and the molten images, and he break into pieces and made dust of them, showed it upon the graves of them that had scattered or sacrificed unto them. So what's Josiah doing here? Basically, he's cleaning house. At 16, he begins to walk with God. And he realizes, man, as a nation, we have drifted far from God and what he has for us. And so he begins to go in and just destroy all these places of idol worship. These groves and these other places were just places of horrible practices. Immorality, just rampant. And Josiah decides as king and as a follower of God, I am no longer going to tolerate this. And he goes in and just starts cleaning house. And this is a powerful reality because he's still only how old? In his 12th year? So a 20-year-old kid is cleaning house for the nation of Israel. He's pulling the whole nation of God, or the nation of, of Israel back to God. He's pulling them back into a relationship with him. He begins to clean house and tear down these areas used for idol worship. And how popular do you think that made him in this culture? This is a culture that, by the way, there were some that conspired to kill his father, okay? I mean, he's not like, you know, he's might not the most popular guy right now. But it's amazing when you read this story, you're going to find the people of Israel actually begin to rally around him. They don't start really kind of going against him. They don't tear down or go against his character. They actually begin to rally around him. We're going to find out in a little bit here the whole nation supports him. How in the world does that happen? I'm telling you, when you stand for God, sometimes people will come at you and attack you, but often people will begin to respect you, look up to you. You're going to be used of God to impact into their life, and maybe they've been being impressed upon by the Holy Spirit, and you get to be that voice and that catalyst of change for them. Listen, just because you stand for God doesn't mean everyone's going to hate you. There'll be those that persecute you, those that mock you, but there'll also be those that respect you that look at you when you decide to live differently than the culture around you, and they begin to think, man, what's so different about this man or this woman? There's something about them. There's this joy in them. There's this peace in them. And I just, I just, I want to be around them. That's what I see with Josiah. The closer he got to God, the closer the people of God got to God. 
Then, in verse 15, an amazing discovery is made. To me, this is a crazy verse, and it's crazy for a lot of reasons, but look at verse 15. In this verse, it tells us, verse 15, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Now, what that's really saying is they weren't using the book of the law. They had no knowledge. They weren't using it firsthand. They weren't worshiping with it. And they were doing some other things. They were bringing some money into the temple, and they were bringing money out, and they found, they discovered the book of the law. What are some questions you might ask? Some questions I would ask is, how long has it been lost? Right? What have you been doing without that book? This book of the law would be one of the five books of the law of Moses. So that, that means their baseline for their whole faith has been lost. And they were just going on and going on and going on and going on and going on. A priest finds this. Josiah is walking with God without this book. The nation of, of Israel is turning back to God without this word. And so I asked the question of, man, how long has this been gone? And what were you doing without it? How did you not realize you lost it? And did you ever think about that? Oh, hey, we found this book. And they bring it to the king. It's amazing to me. They lost the book and didn't even notice. That's powerful to me because I think so many Christians that I've talked to, myself included at times, when we talk about being prone to wander, we can wander away from that intimacy with the Father, that intimacy with Christ, and we almost don't even realize we've lost it. We just get so busy being so busy doing our own thing and we go to church and we even pray and we worship and we do the whole nine, but we've drifted from that intimacy and we don't even realize it until one day we're hit with the reality of what we've lost. And we kind of go, man, it's been so long. I mean, let me ask you, I mean, application. How have you drifted? Don't answer out loud, but how have you drifted in your own walk with the Lord? Have you drifted into misguided worship of self and wants? Into an empty system of works with no real knowledge of what God actually requires? And so often we can fall into this habit of just going to church and doing the thing and thinking God wants that, but we haven't gone to his word to find out what he really wants, what he really requires, what he really asks of us. This drift is not a sudden but slow drift away from the intimacy. Miss a prayer time, miss a Bible study, miss a church service, and little by little, we have drifted from that intimate walk to a long-distance relationship. And what do they tell you about long-distance relationships? They don't work. Why? Because, man, the next time you bump into that person after six months, it's kind of awkward. Hey, I meant to call you. How's it going? It's good. Mm-hmm. Hey, look at the time. I got to go. Because when you see that person again, you're hit with the reality of, oh, man, I haven't talked to them like I really needed to. I haven't spent time with them. Don't let your Christian walk become this long-distance relationship where you go months without spending intimate time with the Father, not because the law says you have to, but because you desire to, and the Holy Spirit just wants to spend time with you. And then the next time you bump into Jesus at church, you're, it's a little awkward, like, hey, Jesus, it's been a while. How's things? Man, we've got to be so careful because that drift can happen little by little. And it's so easy. I mean, let's just be real for a minute. Can we just be honest this morning? It's so easy to drift in our Christian walk. That's why the writer of, of Come Down Fount was right on when he said, I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I know what my heart is like. I know I will drift if I'm given the chance. So he says, bind me, chain me, tie me to you. Seal my heart that I won't wander. 
man, I hope we can be that honest this morning and say, God, I know my desire is to stay close to you, but I also know there's this part of me that wants to drift. And I don't want it to happen. Man, I'm not saying we need to be legalistic about it and, you know, do the devotions every day and check the box and pray every day and check the box. What I'm saying is, if you miss a prayer time because your day was just crazy, do you notice? When you miss reading the word of God for a day or two, do you go, oh, man. I mean, do you actually feel the Holy Spirit saying, hey, I miss you. I want to spend time with you. Man, I just want to talk to you. Or do weeks go by and you're just, oh, yeah, I guess I haven't read in a while. Man, it's not a legalistic thing. It has to be a relationship thing. But it can't be this long-distance relationship where you bump into Jesus every now and then. Hey, it's good seeing you today. Talk to you soon. Man, here in, in Second Chronicles, we read about Josiah and his rule and reign. They find this book of the law. And so real quick, I want to look at what do they do with the book once they find it? And I want to ask you, now that you're being exposed to the word of God in this setting, and maybe you have drifted, Maybe you don't even know Christ. How are you going to respond to the word of God that has been given to you today? What does Josiah do with this discovery? Real quick, three things that he does. And it's amazing how he responds. First and foremost, after hearing the word of God, it was read to him, the Bible says. After hearing the word of God, he first repents of his ignorant sin. Verse 19. For time's sake, we're not going to read all these verses, but verse 19, jot it down. He repents of his ignorant sin. He cries out to God. He rents his clothes and he apologizes to God for what he didn't know from the word of God. God's word always brings two things when it's given. This is true throughout all of scripture. The word of God, whether verbally given in the garden or whether given in print, whether we read it today through the work of the Holy Spirit, always brings two things, convictions of sin and the availability of repentance by grace. The word of God, when given, will always convict us and put two things in our heart, the conviction of sin and the availability of repentance by grace. Every time the word of God is given, that's why the Bible says the word will not return void. Because when you hear the word of God, the Holy Spirit begins to convict us of sin and righteousness, and then we instantly are shown that grace that's available, that we can receive forgiveness of our sins. Josiah cries out and says, God, I'm so sorry, forgive me. And it's amazing to me because what kind of guy is he? Good king, bad king. Good king. And in fact, probably one of the great kings. And yet, even though he's walked with God, he's walked with God, he's done all these great things, he's done all these good works, he's done all these religious things, he's walked with God, he's got a relationship with God, he hears the word of the law, he's convicted of his own shortcomings, which even great King Josiah had some, and he cries out for forgiveness. Man, I love the character of God here because I truly believe God is the same today. That when we hear the word of God and we hear that we have sinned against our God, we have violated his laws and that it takes the death of Christ, his burial and his resurrection to bring me forgiveness of sins. When we hear that presented, God is the same God yesterday, today and forever. And he says, I will forgive you if you cry out to me. If you will ask, I will forgive. In verse 21, after he repents of his ignorant sin, number two, he prays and asks for prayer for guidance. Verse 21, he gives a prayer for guidance. He asks for the people left in the land. He says, hey, for all of us left here, for all of these that are the children of God, go pray and ask God, what are we supposed to do? What's our chances? What's our hope? What are we supposed to do from this point on now that we have the word of God? He says, basically, for those that still hunger for God, what do we do? He seems to believe that God is going to require judgments for the disregard of his forefathers and the word of God. He says, obviously, God's not going to be happy with us. Why? Because we've ignored the word of God. We've disregarded it. So what is God going to do now? 
Isn't it amazing that he understood that God was not only a God that would forgive his sin when he cried out, but he was a God that holds us accountable for our sin? And I wish more of us would understand this. I wish I understood this better. That all throughout the Bible we see God is a God that forgives us when we ask, but he's also a God that holds us accountable for our sin. And Josiah says, hey, what are we going to do now? We know you're a God. You're a just God. You're a holy God. How are you going to judge us? How are you going to bring about judgment for this sin? God confirms in an answer through prayer. Again, jot it down for time's sake, verses 24 through 28. He tells Josiah through prayer, there will be a time of judgment. There will be a time the land will be judged. There's going to be a time that he's going to bring judgment. What's that judgment to come? The captivity that we've already talked about. Sending them into captivity between now and the time of Ezra. But number three, I love Josiah's response to God. Josiah's response to God in verses 30 in verse 31, he calls for a commitment from the people to the Lord. In verse 31, it says this. It says, And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant which are written in this book. And he caused all that were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand to it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. Verse 33, we read about again where Josiah was committed to removing all idol worship. And he affirms again what he did to purify the land and bring the people back to God. This is so powerful to me because God revealed judgment was coming. And yet Josiah's response isn't, we're just going to throw our hands up and quit. What's the point? What's the hope? We're going to be judged. We might as well just hang our heads, doom and gloom. He says, no, no, no. While we're still living, while there's still breath in our lungs, whether judgment comes today, tomorrow, or next week, we're going to make a decision right now to recommit, to make a covenant, a promise with God. And not only did Josiah make this covenant, but the people of the land made a covenant, made an agreement with God, a promise, a contract, and said, we're going to worship you. We're going to follow you. We're going to do what's required of us because we just want to be close to you. And the people of God, the same nation that at one point wanted to kill his father and did and were so dark and so spiritually distant from God, now they say, we agree with you, Josiah, and we're too going to agree to this promise and this covenant. Because one man decided to stand for God in a time when no one else seemingly wanted to, God used him to bring a whole nation back to him. Now, the Bible goes on and tells us that Josiah dies some years later. And following his death, there is a time of judgment that comes. Because why? The people of God return back to their old ways, their ways of idol worship, their ways of being distant. But in closing, I want to look at an amazing verse that speaks again to the character of God. Look at verse 27 and 28 as we get ready to close. Verses 27 and 28. This is God speaking to Josiah. And he says this, Because thine heart was tender, and thou did humble thyself before God, and when you heard his words against this place and against the inhabitants thereof and humbled thyself before me and did rend thy clothes and weep before me, I have even heard thee also, saith the Lord. Is there anything cooler than knowing that God hears us when we pray? Like that is such an amazing thing. I will never understand why God would ever choose to listen to me. The God of all creation listening to me when I file in prayer. Like that is just, if there's no other way to understand grace, that's grace. And why would he listen to us? But he says, I hear you. Why? What was Josiah's heart like? Tell me. What was it like? Tender. What are two times? It says it twice in the verse. What was his attitude like? Was he really proud or was he really humble? 
But he says, you have humbled yourself. You have humbled yourself. You've come humbly before me. What does the New Testament tell us about pride and humility? Those that are humble, what? Can draw near to God, have a relationship with God. The proud God cast away. I don't want you. See, Josiah just tenderly came and just opened his heart to God. And God saw that and heard that and rewarded that. It goes on to say this in verse 28. Behold, I will gather thee to thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered to thy grave in peace. Neither shall your eyes see all the evil that I will bring upon this place and upon the inhabitants of the same. So they brought the king word again. What's he saying here? Yes, judgment is coming, but you will never see it. You will never see the judgment. Why? Because I'm promising you, because of your faith, of just believing in me, humbling yourself before me, calling out for forgiveness of sin and grace, I will answer that. I hear you. I will answer that. And then I will spare the judgment on you because you've chose to turn back to me. You see, God has always been and will always be a God of restoration. I believe that in the same way that Josiah opened his heart and was tender before the Lord and asked for grace, I believe truly for us today, he will do that as well. If you and I will soften our hearts and hear his words today, God will show you grace and he promised to forgive you of your sins and give you eternal life. One last verse to end. I appreciate so much your time and your faithfulness this morning. I know in just a moment we're going to dismiss the kitchen workers. I know they're probably like on the edge of their seats. Like when do we go? Just a few more moments, but we're going to head back and get lunch in just a moment. But I want to, I want to share this one last verse. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 18. Now, I want you to think about what we've been talking about this whole time. Don't just let me read this and you go, oh, that's good, and then move on. Because there's meatballs in a crock pot somewhere that you're like, I can't wait to get into. They ain't going nowhere. Well, they might be going somewhere if you don't get there early. But anyway, the whole point of this, this whole story in the Old Testament is that God allowed Josiah's faith to bring kind of the postponement of judgment. And it was only when the people of God turned back to their idol worship that God said, okay, now judgment's coming again. It was only when they left the intimacy with the father, but because Josiah's heart was open and tender and he cried out to God, God heard, answered, and showed him grace. Then they go into captivity, and then in Ezra we read, as soon as they get back, they put some makeshift houses up, and they go right back to worshiping God and doing what was called for them to do in the book. What book? The books of the law. Now for us today, it's the word of God that we are following under. So when you hear the word of God this morning, when you hear this verse I'm going to read, I have to ask you, what's your heart like? Have you drifted? Are you tender right now to the Holy Spirit? Because he's speaking to you. If you'll just allow him, he'll speak to you. Listen to these words in Ephesians 3.18. And may you, and may you have the power to understand. God wants you to understand this truth. May you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. How wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. I heard this week a really cool explanation of this verse just in conversation, and it really spoke to me, so I wanted to make sure I added this in to the message. How powerful the love of Christ is for you. When I was talking to this individual, they said, you know, I've always thought about that verse, and it's always blown my mind what that actually talks about. And we talked about it a little bit, and they said, I just truly believe that God's love, Christ's love for you, is beyond our ability to measure it in our three-dimensional understanding. That our ability to measure things is put to shame in the face of a love that is unmeasurable. It is beyond our understanding. We cannot comprehend the love of Christ for us. It is the greatest love anyone could know or experience, and it is deeper than you think and know. It is wider than you, deep and you, than you think and you know, and it is all-consuming. 
this verse is speaking to the vastness or fullness of God himself, which passes all knowledge. We read that in Ephesians 3.19. How deep is the love of God? We don't know. How vast? We don't know. How full? How freeing? How powerful? We don't really know because it's beyond our knowledge, but we can believe by faith that it is enough for us. That his love is enough for the forgiveness of sins and the covering of our sin. And so how will you respond to his love this morning? How will you respond to the word of God this morning? Amen. Praise the Lord. How would you respond? If you've drifted this morning at all in your faith, if, if you've missed time with him and it just doesn't seem to get you like it used to, man, I'm telling you, right now respond and say, God, I just want to receive your love and I want to go deeper. And instead of drifting from his love, let's go deeper into his love. Let's just immerse ourselves in his love and his grace and his mercy so that when we go through this week and you see that crazy situation happen in your week, you get that crazy phone call, that really bad thing happens, the doctor calls, whatever happens, man, we're not going to be taken off guard because we're going to be intimate with the Father and we're going to say, God, I'm just going to trust in you. And we just grow closer and closer and closer. But let's be honest. It's easy to say that at church. But man, when we're in the week and we start drifting, I'm going to ask you, just right there in that moment, when you start to drift, just stop what you're doing and just cry out to him. God, I'm sorry for drifting. Draw me back to you. As the song is, or this, the, 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 the author wrote in the books, or the song, Come Thou Fount. Lord, bind my heart to you. Chain my heart to you. Seal my heart that I won't wander. His love is greater than you can ever imagine. So how will you respond this morning? At this time, we're going to pray in just a moment, but I'm going to ask the kitchen, those that are helping in the kitchen, uh, you know who you are. You guys can go ahead and stand and be dismissed. I just really didn't want it to be a distraction when we pray. I didn't know where they'd be sitting, so give them a minute to go ahead and exit. I'm going to ask everyone else, would you bow your heads right there where you are? Just bow your heads. Those up on the hill, those in the back, just go ahead and bow your heads right there where you are. And I want to ask that we would just spend a, just a moment in prayer. We're not going to have an invitation per se this morning. You're not going to be asked to come forward. There's no music. But with your heads bowed right there where you are, I just want to ask, where are you in that walk with Christ? Are you like those in the, the nation of Israel that they lost the word of God and didn't even recognize it was gone? Have you drifted in any way in your walk with Christ? You know Christ is your Savior. You're still just as much saved today as you ever were, but you've drifted just some. Or maybe you've drifted a lot. The lies of the enemy, sin, others, something has caused you to want to drift. Whatever it is, you know where you are. And you know you're not as close to God as you used to be. And so not for the sake of making God happy, not for the sake of getting more of God as far as for your salvation, but just because you desire to be closer to him and you know that he desires to be closer to you, you cry out this morning and you say, God, would you just draw me back to you? Would you bind my heart to you, Lord? You know I'm prone to wander and I'm sorry for that. I pray you'd help me to not wander away from you. With every head bowed and eye closed, I just want to ask, I'm going to pray for you. Is there anyone that would say with a raised hand, pray for me, Pastor John, I've drifted. I know I have and I pray that I would allow the Holy Spirit to draw me back. I'm thankful for the grace of God that allows me to be brought back into his intimate presence. And so is there anyone here this morning with head bowed, eyes closed that says, pray for me, Pastor John. I've drifted in my walk with Christ. 
I'm not where I used to be, and I want to go back to where I was. I want God to make it strong again. Would you raise your hand? Hands over here, absolutely. Just put them up and put them down. Hands in the back. Thank you. Amen. Anyone else? God, uh, you know, Lord, I've drifted. I'm not where I used to be. I want to be close to you again. Anyone else with an uplifted hand? Maybe you're here this morning and you don't even know Christ. Then I want to encourage you, then the, the response that you can have to the word of God this morning is to receive the word by faith. To ask God, God, would you forgive me of my sins, which are many. I cry out to you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your love. I don't ask that I would earn salvation. I ask that I would receive salvation by your grace and the forgiveness of sins. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ and you want to know him, you can cry out to him right now, just there in your seats. Just pray. And say, God, I believe you died on the cross for my sin. I believe you were buried in a borrowed tomb, and I believe you rose again. And I ask that I would live for you as you forgive me of my sins. Whatever God is speaking to you on this morning, I pray that you would respond to the word of God. I pray that you would respond to the Holy Spirit. I pray that we would not drift and wander as we're prone to do, but when we feel that, that inner wandering rising up in us, that we will resist that. We'll cry out and we'll come back. Because guess what? Wherever you left Christ, he has not left you. Wherever you feel like you started walking away from him in your, your personal devotional life or your personal life, he has not left you if you know him as Savior. He is right there with you. You don't have to work your way back to him. All you have to do is acknowledge that you still need him. Open your heart to him. He's right there. He's not left you. He's right there with you. And so allow him to show you that this week as you walk with him. Father, we pray that you would speak to us. We thank you, Lord, so much for your grace, for your love, your mercy, your forgiveness. Thank you for the love of God that is so deep, so vast, so beyond our understanding. The word we can't even understand, humanly speaking, your love for us. But all of us should understand that the love is available. To understand that it is a vast, unending, immeasurable love. And so we receive that this morning. We ask that you would instill those things in our heart. Lord, I pray that you have spoken to these people this morning through your word. I pray, Father, that I've done nothing to hinder your speaking, but I pray that, Holy Spirit, you have led, you have guided, you have directed these individuals in their hearts to you. And I pray that in no way would we quench your spirit, but we would respond faithfully and joyfully to what you have for us. Speak to us through your word, Lord. Thank you for Josiah, this amazing story. And I pray that we would grow closer to you this week, worshiping you for the God that you are. And we thank you. We love you, Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.